Welcome to the WellStack Podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Rossick, the Director of WellStack Content and Solutions. In this episode, I'm joined by John O'Connell, CEO and founder of the Oasis Group. Today's topic, the future of investing. We'll be covering everything from the metaverse to alternative investments, so strap in. John, appreciate you being on the podcast. I very much appreciate you having me, Shannon. Thank you. We've done a ton of content over the years, whether it's articles or videos, and so super excited to have you in this medium now. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. But before we get to our first segment, it would be great if you could just share a little background about yourself and you know how you landed where you are today in the industry and talk to me a little bit about the Oasis Group. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I started my career as a programmer, believe it or not, a very long time ago at Merrill Lynch developing applications. From there, I went to a company called KPMG P. Mark, and I was with them for a number of years. I wound up moving out of KPMG, and I did a couple of startup companies after a stint at Sybase, a big database company. Um, startup companies were great, um, got spoiled. The first one, we got to a $2.8 billion market cap. We took that company public. We sold. I sold two other companies with a bunch of other folks. I went back to Merrill for the end of Merrill in 2008, the unpleasantness, uh, as I like to call it. And then I went to a company called Oracle, where I ran middleware and North American sales for a variety of different organizations at Oracle. I had CRM for a while. I had middleware for a while. I had core technology for a while. And then after Oracle, I was the chief executive officer or the chief revenue officer for a couple of publicly traded global companies. And then I created the Oasis Group in 2019. And talk to me a little bit about specifically what the Oasis does and how you serve the industry. Sure. So on one side of our business, we work primarily with RAAs and IBDs, where we help them to really figure out how to solve challenges with technology. That could be a breakaway firm that's literally creating a brand new technology stack, or that could be a 40 or $50 billion asset manager that's trying to figure out a discrete challenge that they're having with technology or they're trying to solve for. So we've done really interesting data warehouse work where we've helped SMA shops build the analysis that they need to determine what uh, investments they would like to offer within their SMA products, and we've set up full technology stacks. The other side of our business, we work with um, fintech firms that are trying to break into the industry to understand what's the industry like. Uh, we have a very fragmented industry here in the United States that's different from a lot of the rest of the world. So we do a lot of work with global companies that are trying to understand how they put together their market penetration plan for the U.S., well, I appreciate the background, but it is time to get to our first segment, Stats All Folks. And I've been really looking forward to discussing the future of investing with you. We've talked about various topics over the years, but never this one. And specifically when it comes to alternative investments, you know, historically, they've really been reserved for institutions as alternative asset managers targeted those really who could write the biggest checks, right? But now that's starting to change as tech companies look to the retail market, opening up opportunities to wealth managers, advisors, and even consumers. And, you know, I saw this stat when it comes to AUM and alternatives, it's expected to rise from 13 trillion in 2021 to 23 trillion by 2026, according to some forecasts that I saw. So is the future going to be all about alts? You know, are they worth the risk? And what's driving this change? Well, I think what's trying to change, quite frankly, are annual returns. If you take a look at the past 10 years, venture capital investments around alternatives have returned about 22% annually, and private equity returned about 17% annually. And those numbers come from JP Morgan and Bloomberg. Whereas if you take a look in contrast, the S&P 500 on its most recent 10-year period had about an 
return on investment. So when you think about the, the costs of alternatives and providing those within, you know, for the average investor, if you will, or that, that high net worth investor, in the beginning, um, alts were a very expensive deal to manage. And like anything else with technology and with, with this rapid evolution we've seen in the wealth management space in specifics and in financial services in general, you're seeing the cost to administer these types of programs come down significantly. You know, look, when I was first at Merrill Lynch, unit investment trusts were offered to ultra high net worth clients within Merrill. Now those UITs can have a variety of other investments included in them, and they can be offered to, to lower, uh, you know, lower economic echelons uh, within the retail investing space. So I think that's why you're seeing the growth. It's the, pr the prospect of returns. Um, and it's, you know, it's the fact that the cost structure has come down. Also, you've got to remember alternative investments typically have a really low correlation rate when it comes to standard asset classes like stocks or bonds. So they're really attractive for portfolio diversification. And, you know, after the unpleasantness of 2008, <laughs> I think a lot of people are looking to make sure that they have some, some diversification outside of their traditional investing models that they see. And you hear the word alternatives. So what else is out there besides just Bitcoin? What are some of the additional investment categories out there? Yeah, I think, you know, you see this across the board, right? Um, you can see alternative investments include anything from a real estate investment trust, a REIT. Most people think REITs are really difficult to, to wrap your head around. But if you've gone to a mall, you've probably gone to a Simon Property Group. They're the one of the largest mall owners in the United States. Simon Property Group, uh, the SPG, is a REIT, right? And you can own part of the Simon Property Group. You know, what that would be uh, an equity REIT, right? So you're going to own a piece of an income-producing real estate property like a mall. And then, you know, obviously, like any other, like any other REIT or any other alternative, you're going to be able to, um, to enjoy some of the returns that come, come out of that investment. The second thing that you're seeing, too, is you're seeing things like, uh, you know, mortgage REITs. Right where you're taking um, in investing in in property ownership um, in in mortgages that are that are put together around property ownership. A lot of times those are going to be commercial properties, but you can see that. So if you live in a city where there's a lot of cranes, there's a lot of building, and that means that you know you could be involved in in, for example, a mortgage REIT, which could, gives you that kind of uh, access to that. You know, then you've got non-tradable closed funds, right? Like a like a you people are most familiar with a closed end fund in in the fact of a mutual fund, right? Unit right. investment trusts are another really great alternative to that. Interval funds that are out there, 1031 exchanges, qualified opportunity funds, private placements. You're seeing high net worth individuals now really get into more and more of a private placement. You're seeing now with really kind of that explosion of the VC market, right? So private investors can get uh, engaged with the VC and then be able to have some of their money put in a private placement with a, a fintech startup as a great example. So when you think of alternatives, I know right now there's, you know, the big thing is is obviously cryptocurrency and you hear a lot of talk around that. The alternatives market's pretty mature. It's been around for a very long time. When I started my career, Merrill was was really big in, in unit investment trusts. You know, I've been in this business for quite some time. So they've been around for a long time. They're not they're not the wild, wild west. They're very well regulated and and people can really take uh take advantage of a lot of those alternative investments to generate some really outstanding returns. Bigger risk, diversification, um, but the opportunity for large returns. 
Well, you mentioned that mm. space is is very well regulated. How about one that's not so much yet? So I know we promised folks we talk about the metaverse and how that's going to change the future of investing. And, you know, I'm still wrapping my head around this concept a little bit. And really in layman's terms, it's an, an emerging 3D-enabled digital space that uses VR, AR, and other advanced internet and semiconductor technology to allow people to have lifelike personal and business experiences online. So the stat that I want to talk about is 38.5 billion. An article in Bankless Times said the market size of the metaverse is over 38.5 billion as of this year, 2023. Uh, and it's since it's been determined that the metaverse will have a social and economic system in place, what in the world is driving the value there? <laughs> So I, I think like anything else, right, it's scarcity and it's reputation and it's liquidity. Um, in the metaverse today, you have plenty of liquidity. You can trade um, assets, whether those are non-fungible tokens, NFTs, or whether those are, you know, any of the pass-through or the currencies, right? You can trade them on exchanges. So you have liquidity. There's ability for you to be able to trade these items. Some would say that the liquidity is not as good, obviously, as the capital markets, which it's not. Right. It's it's as good as any other alternative market space, though. So part of that is is that is is driving that, you know, and a lot of people turn it and say, you know, well, scarcity, it, it's a digital currency. What's it really worth? Right. So I'll give you a counterpoint to that for a moment. You know, you may or may not have heard that a game got released called Hogwarts Legacy. Sure um, it's Harry Potter game. Right. It's fantastic. Yep. By the way, I'm playing it. That did 850 million in sales and sold 12 million units in two weeks, two weeks. Yeah. So there's obviously there's an abundance there. There's in that particular space. And people argue, well, what? why would I pay for any space in the metaverse? Well, you can pay, you pay for space today, whether you're paying for space in an apartment in Denver or an apartment in New York, you're paying a higher premium for that particular location. You know, it's really funny. If you took the entire population of Earth today, okay, and assume the same density that you have in, in Manhattan, you could fit the entire world's population in New Zealand. Wow. Okay. So what drives this these prices in specific areas for real estate so high? It's that scarcity. It's the liquidity of the market. It's low volume. Low volumes available. High demand drives a price point. What's going to drive a price point in a metaverse? The exact same thing. If you would like to have a house right down the street from Snoop Dogg in the metaverse, you're going to pay a lot more money for that particular location than you would anyplace else. Now, one may argue, well, the metaverse can expand almost unlimitedly. You know, depend. You can create new cities within the metaverse, and you can. Sandbox and Decentraland are just two different cities with different layouts, different populations, but a set of rules, right? So the inability to grow more space in those cities drives that demand. And that scarcity, that's been in the luxury good business forever. Why would someone pay X amount of money for a limited edition Chanel bag? Because it's a limited edition Chanel bag. Not everyone can have one, right? It's the same concept when you think of either the sandbox or Decentraland. What I'm really excited about is other economies that are going to grow out of this, right? Um, and there's already, there's already precedent for this. There was a game called EVE Online that has its own economy driven within the game. They have their own economists that drive it. Supply and demand of resources within that, within that game um, define the, the value of, of specific um, materials that you can buy, build, and, and mine within the game. It's the exact same thing that you're seeing, I think, in the metaverse, right? It's an alternative investment. 
it's going to act like an alternative investment. It's going to have some volatility associated with it like an alternative investment. But at the end of the day, the scarcity of that, the perceived value of it, um, that's what's going to drive the overall value of that investment. And I think for advisors in specific that do not pay attention to this, um, I think you're really missing you're missing the mark because um, you know the computer games sell an enormous amount, the metaverse is selling an enormous amount. I know that there are companies that I've met with that are real estate companies with thirty to forty employees, and all they sell are metaverse properties. So there is definitely an economy growing around this. You know, the New York Times just reported that by 2026, the metaverse real estate market alone will be 5.37 billion. That's an enormous amount of money. So for advisors that are not looking at this as an alternative investment and becoming educated on it now, you know, I talk to a lot of advisors that say to me, my clients are not asking for this. As more and more education happens around this, and it's going to happen, all of the big six, I was a KPMG man, all the big six have their own practices around this. Edelman, not Rick, but Edelman, the um, the advertising agency has a chief metaverse officer. Uh, Disney just hired and put in place their chief metaverse officer. There are going to be more and more properties that are going to be growing up around the metaverse um, and around augmented reality. And if you're not becoming educated on that now, it's going to be very difficult for you when a client does ask you, um, is this a viable investment or how do I invest in this? Uh, you're not going to have a really good answer for that. So I do recommend that people get educated around it now. Well, you read my mind because one of my questions was going to be why should investors and advisors care about the metaverse when you know there's probably already enough challenges here in reality. But it makes a lot of sense because a couple of the stats I was seeing around this, just even over $500 million worth of real estate has already been purchased in the metaverse. You know, 53% of companies investing in the metaverse um, yep. invest in crypto and then put that into context with over 400 million metaverse monthly active users. Yeah, there's definitely a, a case to be made that you need to be on top of this trend as an advisor. And I envision that there are going to be entire properties that are growing up within the metaverse, right? So when you think about it, you know, you may live on a specific street in the metaverse and on that street may be a movie theater. And that movie theater may have, for example, um, all of the properties of a specific artist that may or may not, like, let's take Ed Wood, right? If you're, that, that movie theater could have an Ed Wood show. They charge you a small amount of money. You have the ability to watch any movie that you want, anytime you want for a week. We already do this. We call them streaming services today and they lock you in at monthly, you know, for monthly subscriptions. There is no difference without having a digital property in a metaverse that also gives you access to that content for a specific period of time for a specific cost structure. And if you wanted to live close to that movie theater so that, you know, just for the, the bragging rights of being able to do that as an example, you can. You can think of digital billboards that are in the metaverse. So if you're if someone has subscribed to this specific you know genre of a film, that's a targeted audience for you as a marketer and your ability to be able to provide digital content during that during that showing obviously gives you an ability to get more in front of eyeballs that care about or have an affinity to the brand that you're closest to. So I think the metaverse is going to explode. I do think it's going to it's going to offer new experiences for everyone and new opportunities for brands and companies that want to be able to present into that and new investment opportunities, quite frankly, for investors who would like to capitalize on that growth. 
Absolutely. And I would be remiss if we didn't talk about AI and how that's ultimately shaping the future of investing. And especially when it comes to the metaverse, I mean, those two are going to be working AI and the metaverse will be working side by side. Um, but what we're really starting to see now in FinServ is actual viable use cases around AI. So what's most interesting to you right now? So I, I know chat GPT gets like a lot of the press. <laughs> Yes. I particularly like Jasper AI, which is a, a product that I that I've been using and playing with. You know, it depends on the use case, right? AI is not only an artificial intelligence, but it's a digital assistant. So it's not going to do things for you, but it's going to help you to do things better or faster. So for example, if you wanted to write long form blog content, you know, Jasper AI, you can look on the YouTube, there's a billion people writing long form content with Jasper AI and doing it much faster, right? Um, I think that you know when you're looking at these assistants, what can they do for you? There are certain things that a digital assistant can really help with. Look, we embrace Calendly in this industry, right? There are a lot of advices you use that use Calendly. What is that? It's a digital assistant that enables people to book time on your calendar for you. Um, nobody batted an eye when that was happening, uh, but you know when you when you start to think of AI doing this. Um, people begin to to become more and more concerned for really no reason whatsoever. It's the same thing. It's an assistant that's helping you to provide some sort of task. Now, you know, do I believe that what you're seeing where people are like, hey, um, you're going to see, for example, AI uh, replace or, serve, you know, uh, diminish the value of a financial advisor? No, it's no. not. It's never going to do that. And the reason it's not going to do that is because think of another rules-based engine that is a professional services field has not been affected at all by AI, CPAs. You know, the ability to create, uh, to, to be able to run taxes, why does TurboTax work? It's really AI that's going through the rules of a tax return to determine if you're falling outside of those rules and boundaries and what, but guardrails that are set up around it, uh, depending on what kind of, um, what kind of uh, uh, expenses you're claiming and, and, and things like that. So, that's been already, you know, that technology to automate a lot of those reviews has been around for years and years and years. And yet there's still a shortage of CPAs in the United States, even though, by the way, there are large firms that outsource the tax uh, preparation to offshore teams that know that rule set still hasn't diminished to CPA. You know, they still want CPAs and people still enjoy going to their CPA. I still use one. Conversation. Of course. So I don't, I do not believe that AI is a threat to the financial advisory profession at all. I do think AI will enable financial advisors to do things faster. Now, if you're in a competitive situation with, you know, where I do think AI is going to give certain advisors an advantage is when they're in a competitive situation, right? Um, a great example of this is if you're going to try to find the riches in the niches and, and you're going to, for example, you know, you're going to cater your practice towards, let's say, doctors or attorneys or CPAs or sports athletes, the ability for you to pr produce valuable content for those people and to stay in front of them to drive additional brand awareness is critical for any brand and for, for a financial advisor even more so, right? Um, most of the financial advisors I know are not advertising on television, for example. So they're not doing large brand uh, awareness campaigns. They're doing grassroots brand awareness campaigns. And many of them do either podcasts or blogs or newsletters or things like that. AI can assist you in elevating your content and being able to, to produce more content with the very valuable hours that you have as a financial advisor. Every hour you're not spent in front of a client it's got to be weighed very, very carefully. 
So if AI gives you, gives you the ability to generate a blog article in two hours as opposed to four or six hours, I would take a look at using AI. But like any other tool, it takes time to use it and you've got to really practice it. If you pick it up and play with it for like a month and then drop it, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. I think you need to pick it up. You need to really put time into it as if you were studying for any any other uh, you know course that you were taking. You're not just going to pick it up and then go, yep, I got this. You're <laughs> going to pick it up. You're going to study it. You're going to utilize it. You're going to get proficient with it. And then I think you're going to have a, a force multiplier and a competitive advantage. I couldn't agree more. Uh, John, I appreciate your insights on, on these broad topics. We've covered a lot of ground in just about 20 minutes. Um, so I, I do appreciate that. But it's time to put you in the hot seat uh, in segment two of Ask Us Anything, where I've gone out to the social universe and asked them to submit questions they want answered by you. So let's see who's dropping into the DMs this week. So uh, we had uh, some content pivots here, content topics, uh, getting away from alts and metaverse. Um, first question we had somebody asked, I would love to hear John's thoughts on direct indexing versus custom indexing. Where's it all headed? So I think direct indexing is is really, when you think about this evolution that we're seeing in investing, right? More and more people want their, their investments to reflect their personal values, right? The rise that we're seeing in ESG, SRI, faith-based investing, are all really around uh, investors wanting their money to reflect their value set. And when you think about direct indexing, the reason that you're seeing this rise in direct indexing, again, is technology has given the ability to lower the costs to be able to, to put together and track a direct index. So you're seeing a lot more direct indexing occur in the SMA shops where a separately managed account um, that's catered to Shannon differently from John is going to make a lot of sense. And where I think you're going to see the largest growth in the direct indexing space is really around direct indexes that mimic an, an overall index, but are not going to, for example, have specific items in it. Um, you see a lot of talk right now around exclusionary direct indexing. In other words, I'd like to do the S&P 500, but I don't want the SIN stock. So take out alcohol, tobacco, firearms, cannabis, right? Right. Or you may see someone who says, I want to be able to have more of a green view of, of a, a, you know, a green index or a green view of the index. In fact, if you take a look actually in the ETF space as well, you know, in the ETF space, the thematic investments lose significantly less market share in a market downturn than a non-thematic investment. Why is that? Because I know as a thematic investment, I'm going in for the long haul. It's something I believe in, and I'm not going to be willing to pull my money out of it just based on some small short-term performance issues. I think you're going to see that in direct indexing. And one of the reasons you're seeing this big rise in the conversations around direct indexing is because investors want those indexes to reflect more of their value set. They still want the returns, don't get me wrong, but they want the returns that also match their values. Well, this is proof that we can literally ask you anything on any topic. <laughs> so appreciate your answer. But we did have one more question. Yes. Um, sounds like you've got a fan with the book. Somebody asked, I've been wanting to read The Rise of the Activist Investor. What's the difference between ESG investing and an activist and activist investing? So in the book, I actually invented an activist investing arc. And the passive activist, which is the one of the it's the smallest portion of the arc going all the way up to an activist investor. On a passive activist, that's where you're, you may just be investing in ESG funds, or you may want to create a direct index. You're going to talk to your financial advisor and say, this is what I'm interested in. I'd like some investments that will match my risk profile, that match my time horizon, that match my return pro profile, and 
also match this particular set of my values. And that 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 uh, continuum runs from the passive activist, you know, through someone who's actually taking a look at proxy votes that are coming in, right? And then all the way into an influencer activist where you may be having conversations online, trying to engender more and more people to a cause, if you will. And then all the way ultimately to a, to a full activist investor where you're getting like-minded people on a social media channel or in like, for example, a Discord server, and you're having real conversations about changing the direction of a company by launching a proxy. So that, that whole arc is covered in the book. I don't see it as a difference. I think that what you look at, when you look at ESG investing, SRI, faith-based investing, that's a stop on the arc. And the reason that arc is not just a singular progression, depending on where you are in your life may depend on where you sit within that arc. You may start off being very activist investing when you're young, and then you get married, you have children, you have other priorities. So you may go from a more of an influencer activist, you may drop down to more of a passive activist, but then guess what happens after, after your children are grown and you have more time on your hands? You're going to go right back to that to that more active um, activist, whether it's an influencer activist or going into true activist investing. And I see that with the with the ability, you know, this confluence of technology with, with the ability to be able to do activist investing literally in the palm of your hand by being able to get on Discord servers or, you know, uh, another cha uh, communication channel like that. And by having this access to the markets that quite frankly, when I started my career, you couldn't access the markets like this. That confluence of technology this change, this social dynamic that you've seen over the past 10 years that started with Occupy Wall Street, and you can pick all these social movements that have happened since then, you have this great wealth transfer where there is an enormous amount of money that are going to be leaving the hands of you know, the boomer generation, and that is going to move into the hands of these people who have grown up through these social movements and do believe that they can change the direction of companies. You're going to see more and more retail activist investing. This is the this will be the most active proxy season in history, I believe. And I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people who believe this will be the most active proxy season in history. Uh, and even if you look close to home, Salesforce has an activist investor involved with it. Investnet has an activist investor involved with it right now. If we would have talked about this several years ago, no one would have thought that that was going to be possible. I think you're going to see more and more of that moving forward. And, uh, you know, I think that ESG and SRI are the start. You're going to see more people moving in, into and around that continuum that I invented for the book. All right. So you heard it here, folks. Be sure to read the book, The Rise of the Activist Investor, to learn more. And hopefully, John, will get part two once this all maybe all comes to fruition. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, I do appreciate you being put on the spot and your insightful answers, but we have come to our final and my favorite segment, Stack It or Whack It, where I'm going to throw out a few technologies. They're not always well tech related. And you tell me if they are worth the hype or not, you know, stack it or whack it. So the first one I want to throw out in a very similar vein to what we've been talking about is ESG powered by AI. Will it help with ESG's, you know, incomplete data and rankings challenges? Stack it or whack it. I'd say stack it. And the reason I say that is when you think of ESG, a lot of people just look at ESG, right? Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about governance just as a second. How many women are on our board? How many employees are on the board? What's the board tenure? What's the board turnover? You know, how many are insiders on the board? How many are shareholders on the board? All that falls into governance. So when you think across this, there are almost, there are well over 400 factors that go into ESG, three very simplistic letters 
that I think are are probably the worst three letters that you can possibly put on top of something <laughs> that's much more complicated than that. So do I think that AI is going to be able to help with that? I absolutely do. Today, many of the ESG vendors, are, especially the data providers, their data sets are incomplete because the reporting around the companies are incomplete. Some companies just simply don't report. And I think, and even when they do report, it's a Herculean effort to be able to go through all these reports to pull this data out. So I think there are two real factors that are going to that are going to lend themselves to this. Number one is going to be more and more regulation that's being that's being passed from government entities and also being demanded from consumers of ESG data to have more complete reports and have reports that are a little bit better formatted. And then as soon as you get to something that's going to be better formatted, formatted machine learning and AI are going to really be able to take over and drive much better analytics around those. So I think today you're already seeing some vendors use AI technologies to be able to gather the ESG data faster and have a more complete data set. But I think there's going to be a confluence of forces that really drive better data around ESG over the next three to five years. Makes sense. I'm not going to lie. I was going to ask you a question about the Harry Potter game, but I figured I already knew your answer on that. <laughs> so, so I'm giving you the, the harder topic. So I do have another technology for you, which is asset tokenization. You know, we're seeing blockchain companies that are working on asset tokenization efforts within really each stage of the capital markets ecosystem, right? So do you think it'll ultimately create a more efficient system or are we still a ways away from embracing all that? Stack it or whack it? Um, I think with that, I think at this point, you're going to, I would say you're going to whack it for right now. And the reason I say you're going to whack it at the moment is I think that you're see, what you're seeing is you're going to see the the blockchain significantly help in areas like alternative investments. You're going to see bigger changes outside of our wealth management industry, the insurance industry, right? Contracts um, for the for the construction industry. You're going to see those in those areas of the markets embrace blockchain much faster than what you're seeing in financial services today, um, only because the those workflows are much more well defined. Right. So I think you're going to see that those uh, if you already take a look in the insurance space today, the ability to generate an insurance contract using blockchain exists today for a lot of the insurance brokers. Right. They've embraced that technology already. What I do think with blockchain that you're going to see more and more of is ownership, I think, is going to change significantly around blockchain. The custodian capability, the custodianization of alternative assets is where you're going to see that really big entry point, I think, with blockchain today in our system. And that's because when you think of our traditional capital markets, the custodial space is very well defined. It's very right. well established. You know, you're going to see that, I think, more and more on the alternative side, especially with some of these new emerging technologies like NFTs, like other tokenization that you get around this, whether that tokenization is around a coin or that tokenization is around a contract or an NFT. Um, you're going to see that more and more. One thing that I think is going to be really interesting is derivatives based on alternative investments. Those derivatives based on an alternative investment, that 100% could be an area where you're going to see blockchain really move in quickly. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll be watching this one closely then. So John, thank you for indulging me in this segment. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. So feel free to tell listeners where they can find out more about you and what the Oasis Group is up to. Absolutely. You can find out more at www.theoasisgrp.com. You can also find us on almost all of the social media platforms. We're highly prolific at this point on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram at the moment. 
uh, for the book, you can find that at www.john-oconnell, O apostrophe, I'm sorry, O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. Uh, and you can find anything about the book or about the company. You can find it on LinkedIn for me. And from LinkedIn, you'll get to my link tree. And from my link tree, you can get to everything. <laughs> well, sounds good. And again, much appreciated all your insight today, John. So be sure to subscribe to the Wellstack podcast on all major podcasting platforms and follow all things Wellstack on wealthmanagement.com, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And thank you all for tuning in today. <laughs> <laughs>